I said good day, sir. You don't ever plan anything around the eagles because the eagles represent the grace of God. Okay. You heathen bastards. What a vanilla nebbish name. Well, you know, orcs are people too. I'm thinking of that one cult that got taken out with one punch. So he's got a wall, okay. a gall, a gall, and a wall. Every time you mention the eagles, I think Don Henley. <laughs>
you've you've managed to hit him in a sensitive spot and we need to knock it off um but yeah so it's it's going to be a very long week <laughs> um so that's 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 what i got going on how about you well i'm damian harmony i'm a latin teacher and a u.s history teacher up here in northern california uh the high school level and uh per the usual i end up enraptured in your story and forget entirely what updates uh i'm gonna share Mm. Uh, so uh yeah i can't i cannot for the life of me uh, recall what I was going to say. So, okay, let's just jump back into it. Uh, yes. When last we spoke, um, mm-hmm. I it's funny too because there was a story that I I had that was that was a good one. But when last right. we spoke, uh, Joseph Addison, uh, and and then followed by an anonymous pamphleteer uh, in 1714, uh, wrote uh, God's revenge against punning, shooing in, shooing the miserable fates of persons addicted to this crying sin in court and in town, um, wherein he compared puns or or linked them to the Great Fire, to the Black Death, to just all kinds of terrible things, and that essentially puns get you further from God. Um, and, and 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 that's okay and that's and that's another that's another reason i say that this guy is like the earliest known ancestor of jack chick mm-hmm. because that same attitude of well you know the great fire was caused by you know too many people making dad jokes is is just like well you know uh god is punishing florida because of gay people Oh, yeah. Like feminism is why Hurricane Katrina happened. Like exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so, the same demented, weird. Yeah. It's mindset. The, I'm very weak. Therefore, my God is by proxy very weak, even though he's omnipotent. It's yeah a weird thing. Yeah. yeah, it really is. So, but you know. Uh, we don't what we don't have when Pat Robertson gets on the 700 club and does dumb shit like that is we don't have Jonathan <laughs> Swift. Um, they did yeah. like yeah. we had Chris Hitchens for a while who, as far as being a dick back to them, pound for pound, probably the best in years. Yeah. As far as being fun. Oh, no, oh, no, Too no, hawkish. son. Yeah, um, no. You know, I, I can't think of any like Christopher you, Hitchens, not yeah. known for his sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, who wrote a a a article in The Atlantic saying uh, that women aren't funny and got it published like, yeah, he's really it's it's really interesting. He you have to be, he's a very well written hawk and, and yeah. asshole. Um, yeah. Whereas then you have Penn Penn Gillette, who is yeah. kind of funny, but doesn't have the gravitas intellectual chops and okay that that hitchens has right so we didn't have anybody like that to counter yeah uh you know pat robertson but in 1716 jonathan swift took to the skies um and he wrote a response called quote a modest defense of punning or a complete answer to a scandalous and malicious paper called god's revenge against punning oh wow because in the 1700s, uh, if your title was anything fewer than 400 words, uh, it was it was not it was, worth it was not worth not worth taking seriously. Yeah. So in short, 
Jonathan Swift highlighted the difference between good and bad puns and that the okay. anonymous pamphleteer had not done so. Okay. But okay. Swift did it in the swiftest way possible with a pun-laden response. He also employed other friends to do so. Thomas mm -hmm. Sheridan, for instance, wrote under the pseudonym of Tom Punsibi, which is a multi <laughs> another multi-tongued pun uh, to follow up on Swift's response, because CB means for himself. Okay. So Tom puns for himself. Um, yeah. Wow. The, uh, the Art of Punning, or The Flower of Languages in 79 Rules, for further improvement of conversation and help of memory by the labor and industry of Tom Punsibi. Because, like I said, you're okay. nothing if you don't have a title that takes up two pages. Yeah. So Swift got Sheridan to do this. Sheridan said, quote, Punning of all arts and sciences is the most extraordinary, for all others are circumscribed by certain bounds. But this alone is found to have no limits because to excel therein requires a more extensive knowledge of all things. A runner must be a man of the greatest natural abilities and of the best accomplishments. His wit must be poignant and fruitful. His, I'm sorry, a punter. Um, his understanding clear and distinct. His imagination delicate and cheerful. So this man okay. is telling the truth. Uh <laughs> This man is factually yeah. correct. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, like uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that my pun show has worked for more than six years, uh, we're yeah. past the six and a half year mark now. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons, oh, come to think of it, by the time this publishes, it might be seven years old. All right. But one of the reasons that it's worked so well is because specifically local Sacramento comedian Mark Berg has been our host and referee the whole time. Mark Berg is not only kind of funny but also wickedly smart um and, and so confirm. he's able to judge whether or not a pun works yeah he has to have the breadth of knowledge that he has um and that's that's what makes that kind of stuff good mm -hmm. uh he he also linked pan with puns from a dialectical point of view uh apocrypha to be sure but Fun. Okay, we're back. We're back to mm -hmm. uh, oh, sorry, Sheridan. Tom Pun yeah. CB. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. uh, so yeah, he's linking pan to puns, um, and uh, from a dialectical point of view, uh, okay, this is apocryphal, but he's fun all the same. When doing so, he says, "Quote: Pan being the god of universal nature and punning free of all languages, it is highly probable that it owes its first origin as well as name to this god." Uh, punning, panning, okay. punning. Yeah, punning, yeah. pan. Yeah, okay. All right. Now, obviously, right. that's not true, but yeah. Yeah. Sheridan, as pun CB, wrote that there were two different kinds of puns physical and moral puns. The physical pun's goal is cheer and happiness of a person. Good health, actually. Literally, good puns will make you healthy. Um. So, again, you're welcome. Moral <laughs> puns. Okay, moral yeah. puns. Moral right? puns are, quote, a virtue that most effectually promises the end of good fellowship, which is, of course, its own goddamn pun. Okay, say that again. A virtue that most effectually promotes the end of good fellowship. Okay. Yeah. 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 So good fellowship as an end, or mm -hmm. are you ending good fellowship? Mm-hmm. 
Now, in these writings, Swift and Sheridan serve as the masters against puns. Uh, they're still codifying them, though. Um, so there's there's something going on here. There's there's a shift that's happening. Um, they are still creating a world in which acceptable and unacceptable categories are used to rule over puns. They're still buying into the idea that puns are somehow illegitimate by categorizing what is legitimate. Okay. So in their defense, they are still a uh, part of the problem. Okay. And this continues the steamrolling of puns into the world of the common man, uh, not the noble and not the wealthy. It is therefore lowborn humor. And by the mid 1700s, it was clear that puns were not acceptable in salons. Elizabeth Carter proposed a 15 volume set to be written entirely by the women of letters, sarcastically saying that it should be, quote, the whole art and mystery of punning. So she's making a joke, right? No, okay. Women should write uh, an encyclopedia set. Oh, what would it be on? Puns. Ha, 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 ha. Wow. Yeah. Now, this, of course, brings us to, as you were talking about, the movement toward dictionaries, which is another blow against puns at that time. Okay. Dictionaries are a list of meanings of words, right? Yes. They are, in essence, a snapshot of a language. Yes. Yeah. The yeah. problem with dictionaries is people think that that is the end-all, be-all instead of the start point. Um, well, depending on whether you view it uh, from a descriptivist or a prescriptivist true. point of view. True. You know. But most uh, people, when they use a dictionary, it's uh, it's not... Let's find out what else that word means. It's mm -hmm. let's make sure that me word means what you think it means. Yeah. So okay. it's an indexing Fair. of the whole English language, right? And it's another yeah. attempt to make scientific and precise the English language. To which I say, what the actual fuck? Um, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah. a language that that has made an existence out of, you know, mugging other languages for vocabulary and stealing <laughs> its grammar from three different sources. Like, sure. you know, yeah, let's be scientific about it. No, this is a this is a monstrous chimera of a language we're yes. dealing with. Like, yeah, it's All proof right. that God exists, because by the grace of God, we can understand <laughs> each other. Um. So uh, I, I wish my, my, my English students were, were old enough for me to be able to, to, you know, make that statement and have them understand like, yeah, you know? Yeah. So you, you we, and you talked about it last time, uh, Samuel Johnson, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what lines up almost perfectly with Samuel Johnson's efforts here is phrenology. Oh no, we're back to fucking phrenology again. Yeah, we never left because this bullshit <sighs> idea that oh, it needs to be scientific is pseudoscientific at best. This is just categorizing. This is not even taxonomy. Um, the first dictionary he publishes is in 1755. One of the first manuals on phrenology came 20 years uh later, or no, 20 years earlier. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, so with spelling codified, or at least a momentum toward that codification, mm -hmm. initiated by a dictionary right at the time that the English Empire was heading toward its apex, and whiteness was also codifying, puns took a body blow to a cultural impetus toward weaponizing language against people across the world. 
Okay. Puns stood in the way of that plowing under of other people's. Um, puns, I'm not saying puns are what would have kept rebellions alive, mm-hmm. but without puns, you don't have as much criticism that is couched in a way that uh, both sharpens and softens, right? Okay, yeah, as you mentioned last time. Yeah. Samuel Johnson said of puns, quote, to trifle with the vocabulary, which is the vehicle of social intercourse, is to tamper with the currency of human intelligence. He who would violate the sanctities of his mother tongue would invade the recesses of the na- of the national till without remorse. You know, there are any number of things that I admire Johnson for. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, I'm disappointed to hear that this was his take on puns. Yeah, that that level of humorlessness. Yep. Well, and and again, <sighs> language as a tool of colonization. Mm. There's a standard way to use English, which we can use to other those who are defined as not white, and puns go into that. Puns wow. are for the other people. Puns are for the lowborn, the ones we don't have to pay attention to, the ones mm. who don't have the right to vote. Mm. Yeah. Puns are for people okay. who don't understand the language, who would employ rhetoric instead of precision. Yeah. And precision is what you need for laws where you can define where people can and cannot walk. Ugh. Yeah, okay. This was a time when Lock. Shakespeare was also considered for the commons, not for the proper gentleman. Theater itself was similarly seen as for the commons, whereas musical performance, which was devoid of words, was also on the rise. Mm. Johnson had said of Shakespeare that his puns were quibbles and that Shakespeare was overly fond of them. And I would say Shakespeare is overly fond of them. But he says this to the point where he sounds really fucking stupid. Quote, a quibble, poor and barren as it is, gave him such delight that he was content to purchase it by the sacrifice of reason, propriety, and truth. It's like, have you read the plot to Twelfth Night? None of that shit makes sense. Have you have you read fucking Hamlet? Right. Like, I'm sorry. Um, the man you're you're saying is devoid of all of those qualities is the father of literary internal life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um additionally, how many words in your fucking dictionary were first penned by Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't realize that an episode of our podcast could actually change my opinion about a historical figure quite so emotionally as I'm feeling yeah. about Samuel Johnson right now. Yeah, and you're not even drinking tonight. No. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. Yeah. And it's don't, this... don't come for my boy Bill. Like right. all right. Yeah. And it's this same Samuel Go Fuck Yourself Johnson who said puns are the last refuge of the witless. Okay. What a humorless jerk. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So as this delegitimization continued, along with white supremacy and and empires, uh, puns were still big amongst the common folk, especially across the pond with another group steeped in imperial white supremacy, the American nation, born anew. Ben Franklin punned at signing the Declaration of Independence. Remember, we should all mm-hmm. hang together. Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to Abigail Adams 
complaining from France about puns that he'd heard were being deployed in Philadelphia during the Constitutional Convention in 1787, which I have like long said that the only thing that Thomas Jefferson did that was good was he wrote really well. Mm -hmm. um, and and this only serves to continue that. <laughs> this is just more proof. Yes. Yeah. Which I am intensely disappointed in this man in, in a very unreasonable <laughs> way. It, and it's because he's the only redheaded president we really ever had. And he mm. happens to be like the shittiest person that we've ever had as president, save for maybe two or three. Okay. I yeah. like, I know right. Andrew Jackson, Donald Trump. <laughs> and I mean, I kind of have sympathy. LBJ. Um, he did enough things that were kind of good for people. Yeah, I'm just talking about yeah. as as a, oh, as, as a person? individual, yeah, as a person, he was a, a dickhead. Yeah, yeah, massive yeah. jackass. So, <laughs> but yeah, Thomas Jefferson you, you is can, right you, up you, there. You can you can tell that we're both history teachers when we have this kind of you know pronounced yeah. opinions about like which which president was the biggest asshole. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, but you know, it it only makes sense that Jefferson would would be complaining about puns like this because he totally was sniffing his own farts about yeah. what an enlightenment thinker and philosopher and everything else. He oh was. yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so of course he's all, you know, on board with the, you know, precision of language and, and all mm -hmm. of this ambiguity is just, it's, it's disgusting and grotesque and you shouldn't do that stuff. Like right. dude, get, get over yourself. And please. remember he had taken Sally Hemings with him to France <laughs> And then basically kept her locked up because he was like, oh, shit, she will go free if she walks around in Paris. Yeah. Um, And then made promises to her about her family so that she wouldn't leave him. Like, he, oh. he's that asshole. Like, oh. he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, And he, he is taking time out of being this piece of shit to write <laughs> to the wife of John Adams yeah. in 1787 bitching from france about puns he's hearing in f that are coming from philly yeah he said quote the most remarkable effect on this convention as yet is the number of puns and bon mots it has generated this occasion more than any other thing i have seen convinces me that this nation is incapable of any serious effort but under the word of command the people at large view every object only as it may furnish puns and bon mots and I pronounced that a good punster would disarm the whole nation were they ever so seriously disposed to revolt. Oh, okay, so he's he's literally he's literally trying to argue that that the use of puns proves that the American people are not sufficiently serious to be a republic. To to be a republic. Yeah. Never mind the fact that the other stuff he was hearing out of the Constitutional Convention pointed in the direction of a strengthened federal government, which he was ideologically opposed to, mm -hmm. which he distrusted, and which mm -hmm. as a member of the <laughs> Jeffersonian uh, you know, planter class, uh -huh. which we've talked about before. Yeah. His his whole his whole ideal being, you know, the the one, you know, opposed to Adams and Hamilton and 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 the idea of of a strong federal state, mm -hmm. yeah. So of course he's going to argue. Well, you know, the, the common rabble city folks, 
Philadelphians in particular, you know, are not are not sufficiently they're not they're not serious enough. They don't they don't. But have... he's not he's not even talking about them. He's talking about the people in the convention, the secret convention. To yeah. Make the Constitution. He's bitching. Oh, yeah. They're punning too much. Yeah. And he even. What a. Yeah. The humorless prick. He even yeah. writes a letter to John Adams, who is in London at the time, uh, to point out how smart everyone is, um, saying that it was an assembly of demigods. So he's like really disappointed in all of these great men because they can't help but pun all the time. And to me, that's like their only saving grace. But like he's. <laughs> And he's saying essentially that like they could derail a whole country or a whole movement with just a couple puns. Well, okay. So there's, so there's several things I can see going on here. Number mm-hmm. number one, he doesn't like what he's hearing about the direction the convention is going in. Right. So there's that. Number two, this is very clearly going to be a very important thing. Mm-hmm. And he's not there for it. So his ego is wounded. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's, so he's diminishing, you know, on, on the one hand, he's saying, you know, what, a, what, a, what a powerhouse, what a, what a, you know, uh, uh, an amazing stable of thinkers this is. And then he's like, well, you know, oh my God, they're spending all their time writing these puns. He's embittered that he's not part of that glitterati mm-hmm. group. Um, and so he's he's envious and bitter. Yeah. And even if he was there, he'd have his nose stuck up so far in the air because, like, you know, I'm obviously the smartest guy in this room. Like, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. No, it's he's telling on himself. Yes. So hard. Oh, yeah. So when... clearly. Yeah. Jesus. I mean, right. imagine if he was right. Like. Don't you wish that a pun or a string of puns would have stopped shit a couple Januarys ago? Yeah. You know? God damn, if that was all it took. Um, and again, he's saying it from France. He's not mm-hmm. there. He's bitching yeah. about the puns that he's heard. I, I want to know who it is that's snitching out the members of the convention to Madison. Jefferson. It's gotta fucking be Madison, right? It's, yeah, it, okay, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be, because like the those Virginia pricks. Yeah. So Another imperial reason, imperial reason for puns being on the decline is still tied to the codification of language. When puns were big, it was when there was a bunch of cosmopolitanism going on in an area. Remember, I talked about the coffee house uh, thing going on in London. In the 1500s and 1600s, London has a whole bunch of cu- cultures bouncing into each other within okay. London. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when England becomes an empire... And starts empiring all over the place. A lot of poor folk get conscripted, get impressed, and get volunteered out of desperation. And they left London. And as such, and they left a lot of other cosmopolitan areas. Yeah. And as such, the homeland becomes much more homogenized. And uh, the poors kind of get uh, swept out. And with that homogenization comes a codification and a belief that language was a serious thing that needed to be frozen in time. And fewer interactions with other languages means fewer chances at puns. Okay. One only has to read an Indian menu, Indian food menu, and mm-hmm. find, oh, there are so many fun ways to go be punny. Mm-hmm. It's cure to see. Mm. Oh, gee. Uh, that last one was kind of a non-pun. You're right. It, it fell yeah, flat. Yeah, yeah. 
a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right? Your spirits start to sog. You know, and you look at me the way that Judah Ben-Hur looked at his former lover, and you're just like, Masala. I'm going to need to take a break. Oh, there you go. Nice. Nice. Ah. Uh, yeah. Some of those were Garam. <laughs> See? <laughs> so if you Which is only have... kind of a half pun, but it's still it's fucking best I can I'm do. still proud like, of you. I'm okay, still happy, thank you. you know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, it matters to... to me. It alu matters to me. <laughs> Listen, doll. Oh. <laughs> oh, he's holding his heart. Uh, <laughs> but I think this just absolutely proves my point, though. Yeah. Like when you have oh, these yeah. other languages bouncing into yeah. each other, they're not abrading, they're bouncing, and it's fun. Yeah. And you get different phonemes, and it's just fun. And yeah. at the frontiers of both the American nation and the English Empire and the Roman Empire, if you go back far enough, you're yeah. going to find puns. Because at the frontiers, you've got multiple languages. At the frontiers, you've got less stodginess, you've got more diversity, and you've got a flattening of the wealth curve out there, too. You have that wealthy prick who owns a bunch of land, but then you got the rest of us who have to work it. Okay. Yeah. Also, like I said, multiple languages colliding. Uh, Witness, in Boston in the 1830s, it's already a city for more than a century, and it's a yeah. hub of smart smartiness, right? Tradition, yeah. hierarchy, despite the fact that it's a port. Um, yeah. And you see this conflict between the traditionalists and the frontier. It's a port city, so you have a lot of cosmopolitan culture. Um, and yet you've got these smart smarties, right? So in the Daily Evening Transcript, which was a nascent newspaper that had only started in July of 1830, it decried in an editorial, quote, the language is in danger of being stub twisted. The original significant signification of words will soon be lost if a sanitary committee be not appointed to the to report the punsters and disinfect them forthwith. Wow. Yeah. Now holy crap. The weird thing is they're they're using extended metaphor there. Which is wordplay unto itself, but they're saying this by doing that, this is okay. Yeah. Rest of y'all are wrong. Further mm-hmm. down, the art the uh, editorial also says that boys should be prevented from punning and smoking. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, and that's in July of eighteen thirty. And note that the language okay. is treating it like it's an epidemic. Boston had already been through its shares of epidemics by then. So this is a really effective version of imagery that they're using on a number of of levels. Okay, so mm-hmm. I have a question. Sure. And and this is this is going to take us backward a little bit chronologically. Mm-hmm. But uh we've we've moved into the 1800s at this point, but in the in the late 1700s. Mhm. We have obviously in the in the Anglophone world with Jefferson mm-hmm. and all these guys and Locke and everybody, you know, yeah, shitting on puns, right? Humorless slavers. Yeah. Yes. I, I yes. Cannot there you leave go. that part out. Notice yeah. I didn't say John Adams wrote this letter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so what I although, find interesting, in fairness, I bet you John Adams probably enjoyed a word jumble more than he enjoyed a pun. Yeah, probably. Um, he that kind of that kind of mind. He would have laughed at Marmaduke, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I feel like you're taking a dig at him, and <laughs> a bit, a bit, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but but anyway, in in so this this is very very heavily Anglophone mm-hmm. that we're talking about here. Um, what I find interesting is my understanding of the court of the French court mm-hmm. shortly before the revolution. Mm-hmm. The part of the currency amongst the nobles in that court was wit was verbal you know interplay and uh-huh. and punning being a part of that sure and it was intensely cutting and deeply cruel yes because of the because of the social stakes involved and everybody you know yeah it being used as a weapon yes but I find it interesting that we have all this, we have this thing, this Anglophone thing, you know, decrying the corruption of the language that's involved and, and it, it separates us from God. Whereas in, in, in the, in the court of the Francophone world, mm-hmm. um, it based on my, my limited knowledge, it, it sounds like it was a very different thing. Did you, have any opportunity to look into that side of things? Not terribly much. I okay. confined most of my stuff to English and Latin, okay. given okay. the home field yeah. advantage I have on those. Now, yeah. that said, I would point out a few very distinct things that might help shed some light on that. Number one, okay. the, the powers that were in mm-hmm. France um, were not the Huguenots, and they were not the counter reformationists. <laughs> okay. All right. I see and what they you had mean access to wine. Okay. And I think those three things may <laughs> well have combined. Okay. And the weather was nicer. So <laughs> you could see tits. Yeah. <laughs> and I really think that those four things combined compared to England, where the Puritans chopped off the king's head and yeah. then decided 10 years later, we need kings again. Yeah. And they yeah. they they put on trial the corpse of their former leader. Like, yeah. you know. Oh, they, yeah. They, no, the, yeah. The, the, and the, name their hmm. alcohol that brought them joy and frivolity. You cannot. And I, I would say, you know, like the, the way that the English drank mm-hmm. compared to the way that the French drank in, okay. at court. Yeah. And I would also say that when you do take a look at when they restored the, the monarchy, the first guy they, they got back was Charles, James Charles, Charles. Yeah. Charles the second, who was all about like fucking and orgies and, and theater. Oh yeah. And then they immediately had like a, a plague outbreak and a fire. So like they just never <laughs> got their feet under them for enjoying shit. And so by the time you get to, you know, your Jeffersonian shit in America, you've got Mad King George. I mean, you just have a bunch of humorless shitheads. And that's the culture. All right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Now, I mean, don't I get me wrong. That. France certainly had its whole beheading phase um, with the terror. Which was a reaction to the effete right. head in the cloud aristocrats who were doing all of the punning. Right. So <laughs> I, I don't think they went yeah, the okay. right way. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I just, it, it had yeah, popped yeah. into my head and I was like, I, I, if I don't ask this, I'm going to regret it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but in America, yeah, you've, you've got that happening in Boston where they're comparing it to the plagues that they fucking had. Yeah. Um, and Jesus. as the civil war drew closer and we go further West, uh, before Kansas was actually bleeding, puns were weaponized in an increasingly hostile Congress. Former presidential candidate and Senator Lewis Cass was arguing for popular sovereignty in 1850. Okay. Horace Mann stood firmly against it, and I forget where Horace Mann was from, but he was an abolitionist, and he possibly was seeing into the future of what the debacle would befall Kansas. Cass made an obvious pun on Mann's name in his attack, to which Mann responded. Okay, so his name's Horace Mann, right? So, yeah. okay, you're not a real man. You know, Mr. Oh, Man, that kind of okay. thing. That kind of thing. So man responded, quote, as a general rule, I condemn punning as a malignant attack upon any gentleman for the accident of his name. It is wholly unpardonable. It is but barely justifiable as a retort to warn the general of the dangers he encounters by indulging his love of punning. I will venture to subjoin a specimen or two of what might be easily and identif- indefinitely extended. So abolitionists were not known for their humor either and no. they were fighting a very righteous fight yeah uh but he's basically calling out the the dumbness of the guy who punned on his name he then launched into a litany of puns jokes insults rhymes and sundry against senate the senator from michigan ending with the plea to stop punning nice yeah so if Senator yeah. Cass was, quote, now disposed to say quits on the score of punning, I am, and will draw no more upon the asinine or Cassinine associations, which his name suggests. Which points for petty, points yeah. for using puns to criticize the guy who puns. Really, yeah. in a lot of ways, it feels like, okay, you want the smoke, here comes the fire. <laughs> Like you, yeah. you decided to pun in my name. It honestly, it reads like, so, you know, I skipped a bunch, yeah. but it reads like that scene in Roxanne where he's like, oh, you know, yeah. the 20 insults. Yeah. It's like, well, if we're going to pun and then, right. Cool. And at the same time though, he is still codifying and dissing puns. So, okay. Yeah. You know, very Jonathan Swift. I like it for the moxie. I like it for the petty. Um, I like it because, you know, in many ways, it's um, a friend of mine used to do rap battles. Okay. And she did a, a battle uh, where she talked about like, because she's she's a transgender individual. Um, somebody made some sort of joke about about that or something else. Um, and she says, wow, you know, and, and, and it's all she's all she's just like freestyling here. And it's um. It's all rhyming, but the gist of it was, wow, your 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 insult was really mean. Uh, I don't mean mean as in like you're mean to me. I mean mean as in it was barely average. And then she just goes in on him about how mediocre he was. 
oh wow yeah you know and it's nicely like, done yeah and then she's like but i'm above that you know which is above <laughs> the mean which i'm just like oh bailey i love you um yeah but <laughs> so he does this right uh but yeah. he still is i mean it's it's in the congressional record criticizing puns uh and then using a bunch yeah. and then using a really good one at the end like oh by the way we can make fun of names okay it would be like if anthony weiner attacks somebody about their name yeah you know and it's like yeah. oh yeah. honey so in 1856 yeah. a magazine in boston called putnam's monthly pointed out that despite the hoi polloi's objection and scorn of punning most folks still like puns quote our puns are protests against the trite and the prolix and a wholesome recognition of the popular taste. So suck it, windbags. Like. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Did did they actually use the term hoi polloi in that manner? No, no. Okay. Um, although it, it was used to refer to those folk. Um, really? Yeah, the hoi polloi because... is actually a, a mention of, of the upper class in Boston. Really? Mm-hmm. Because every time I've ever heard it used, it's talking about those those peasants out there. The hoi polloi is the way I've always heard it used. So interesting. Yeah, as as far kinda as like, I recall, kind of like Nimrod. It's you know it started out meaning one thing and sarcastic use turned it into something else. Oh right right right. I mean yeah. that's my guess. I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Hmm. So so I might have reversed it. That, that's okay. entirely possible because yeah now that you said like you know it's essentially referring to the plebes yeah um, the great unwashed yeah i you know what i i might be misattributing it because of an a- episode of mash okay yeah right. but anyway so in any event uh yeah. so they they came out basically saying you know what um mm-hmm. all you snooty types can suck it because people like puns right okay now that's 1850s. So I'm seeing a shift, right? Now that we don't have powdered wigged assholes, and now <laughs> that now that abolitionists are being like, "Yo, slavery's fucked up. This is not yeah. cool." Yeah. And I, it's not like you don't see empires expanding a shit ton. They are, but yeah. now it's obvious that they're doing it through violence. They're not just doing it through legalism. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it was probably obvious prior to that, but it was like acceptable violence whereas now it's like there's a moral reckoning that seems to be happening or or the beginnings of one forming yeah yeah okay so an english teacher named william matthews in chicago authored a book in 1888 and it was called wit and humor their use and abuse and he still brought into question the delegitimization that we saw in england by mr sheridan right Mm mm-hmm but he does ask a central question, which local Sacramento comic Ed Mina has also brought up. Uh, Matthew said, quote, why it should provide such hostility when legitimately employed is an enigma hard to explain. There are few persons who do not betray if they do not avow a keep relish for this species of jest when it used when it is used sparingly and it is really extempore. Okay. Put it more succinctly, Edmina said at a show that I was at, because he's also hella smart, he said, quote, why would you get mad at a pun? It takes intelligence to understand a pun. You're mad because you're smart? 
Okay. So we do see in Matthews a rejection of the Enlightenment self-aggrandizement. Okay. And yeah. see, this is where it gets really dicey for me because how do you reject the Enlightenment self-aggrandizement, but you keep the values that came about from the Enlightenment? How do you reject um, people taking themselves too seriously, but keep the value on intelligence? How do you reject intellectuals for being pricks without being anti-intellectual? It is a hard line to it's, walk. It's a very, very fine line. It is. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, how do you criticize uh, the the enslaver and colonist uh, colonizer mentality of John Locke without also throwing out with the bathwater uh, his ideas of life, liberty, and property? Like you know in yeah. favor of despotism <laughs> like yeah it's it's really easy to find the wrong people on your side yeah um so we do see in matthews that rejection of enlightenment self-aggrandizement and he sought to make the world a better place by means of a greater understanding of language not a more restrictive approach quote words are often not only the vehicle of thought but the very mirror in which we see our ideas and behold the beauty or ugliness of our inner selves Okay. Which is really not that far from what Ed Mina said. Yeah. And I really appreciate that because in the 1850s, we start to see it opening up again where language is not, language and science are more inquisitive and more of a start point, not a, this is how we're going to shut everything down and take advantage of it. Okay. Now, as we grew toward a more urbanized society, which I think is vital, um, one in which immigrants came over literally by the boatload. In America, there's an inescapable reality. White supremacy is more and more reactionary, and languages are bumping into each other more and more. And no group, perhaps more than European Jewish immigrants, suffered from the bullshit eugenicist arguments who also had a richer linguistic tradition of puns. There's other groups that come close, but the otherness seemed to wear off for those groups more permanently as time wore on. Because okay. one of the chief concerns that eugenicists had was the weakening of whiteness through people right. who looked white but weren't. But, yeah. Right? So you, you're oh, threading yeah. a lot of needles there. And that was specifically targeting Jewish immigrants. Mm-hmm. From 1880, and, and, I, and Italian immigrants, too. Yes. From 1880 to 1920, more than 24 million immigrants came to the United States. 50% of all European Jewish people who came over in that period settled in New York. The other 50% spread throughout the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. So fully half of the Jewish immigrants who came from 1880 to 1920, um, they settled in New York. And New York's population rose from 1.2 million in 1880 to 5.6 million in 1920. Holy shit. Yes. Now, as I said in the last episode, in the New Testament, we saw Jesus punning. But Job yes. also puns in the book of Job, too. The word for his name, Eob, and Oyeb are one letter different, apparently. And this is my very limited understanding, and frankly, I'm okay. taking it from other sources. But Yiddish is somewhat comprehensible to German, which is a cousin of English. 
And since Yiddish theater had grown from nothing in 1900 <laughs> to hosting as many as 30 shows a night by 1914, puns and theater were a natural marriage again, just as it was with Shakespeare. This combined with the popularity and popularism of uh, vaudeville, the performance of performers of which got into early films once talkies got going, and you see a clear line from Yiddish humor to puns in movies uh, to puns being a popular cultural artifact all over again, regardless of what hoity-toity society people tried to say. The people had spoken, and the wheel bespoke was rolling. Mm hmm now, okay. if you take a look at uh, comedy and the Borscht Belt circuit in the first half of the 20th century's uh, comedians, specifically mm -hmm. the ones that were steeped in Yiddish comedy and Jewish comedy uh, sensibilities, Henny Youngman, Milton yep. Berle, Gracie yep. Allen, George Burns, yep. Jack Benny, and of course, my beloved Marx Brothers. And of course, their success commercially meant that other non-Jewish comedians would take it up as well. Laurel and Hardy, Three Stooges, Charlie Chaplin when he did talkies, but also his visual puns, right? Abbott and Costello. Puns were a pillar of comedy in the early days of radio and cinema because those early days were the waning days of vaudeville, which had been a safe house for puns in ethnic Hamlet, Hamlet uh, theaters, in, uh, in the ethnic Hamlet theater circuits. Okay, yeah, this, this makes sense. Yeah. All right. So we have urbanized, right? By 1900, yeah. you have 50-50 urbanized uh, to rural. You start to have traveling shows. Those traveling shows are the same uh, acts going from town to town. So yeah. now you've got a diffusion of that culture, those jokes, those puns, those sensibilities. Yeah. And as you have seen an increase in specifically in uh, others, non-white, but mm -hmm. pass for white, but piss off the eugenicist white yeah, uh, comedians and acts, you start to, I mean, you see all these things kind of happening at once. Mm. And then the World War hits and then the Depression hits. But during the Depression, prices went down, performances went up. Um, people traveled further right. and further yeah. for their performances. Um, so puns are getting all over the place. And then World War II hits. Yeah. And you've got a mass mobilization. You've got all kinds of people drafted together, conscriptions, things like that. And you have, in the same way that professional wrestling came out of the diffused version of wrestling that was yes. at one time regional and then became nationalized, you see the same thing. So post-World War II, society, frankly, is exhausted and starts to constrict again. Puns were once again demeaned as unfunny, predictable, and unclever. And part of this is due to the fact that comedy had changed to become more overtly countercultural, and thus the monologists elbowed out the routine guys. So that happened. Oh, okay. Routines okay. are no longer the thing. You get stuff like Lenny Bruce. Still a Jewish comedian, I might add. Yeah. But he's deliberately pulling away from those old ways. And he's iconoclastic as hell. And he's pushing humor norms into new places, uh, like overtly criticizing and challenging the dominant culture. Yeah. Uh, he got arrested for obscenity for doing so, of course. But puns really didn't have the same punch that he was looking for. Yeah. And a whole new breed of comics came up with him as the exemplar. 
So by the time George Carlin was getting arrested in Milwaukee for obscenity for challenging the dominant culture, puns were again pushed into the margins. Yeah. All Except right. Except they show up with a very popular TV show. And I genuinely think that if it were not for Alan Alda, uh, they they might have stayed in the margins a lot more. But because Alan Alda brought so many puns to MASH, and because MASH was such a hit, and Hawkeye Pierce's character uh, was zany as hell, and he was used as this Arlo Guthrie-like challenge to an authority that mm-hmm. ran counter to common sense, Puns were the lint on the sweater of the American living rooms throughout the 1970s. Okay. Laugh so here's it. a question. Yeah, yeah go when for it. you When you specifically mention Hawkeye Pierce, mm-hmm. could it be that the writers who were who were creating his 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 ethos? Mm-hmm. Could it be that on some level his using all of those puns was a signal of his uh, status in terms of, uh, you know, he's he's him being in in opposition to Winchester, for example. Well, you remember, know, as, Winchester as... starts in season seven, season six, seven. That's true. Yeah, it is very late. So you've got Frank Burns prior to that. Okay. Well, yeah. we can also, I mean, you know, Burns and Burns and Pierce being kind of, you know, oppositional mm-hmm. or, or yeah, being oppositional figures. Yes. You know, and, and so the fact that Hawkeye is making all these puns is like oh my god this guy and these shitty and these shitty jokes like there's a couple things going on there um okay so burns absolutely stands in for frank burns stands in for the authority as opposed to common sense like nothing he says makes sense he is in charge however or he is a major you know he cares more about the authority he is ridiculous right hawkeye pierce is is coded as jewish he is coded as the marx brothers okay oh, there were several episodes where he comes in looking like groucho yeah you know yeah so he's coded in that way and i think if you take a look at the writers uh they're all older men um mm, and okay. they're all older men who had a lot of experience in the comedy circuits and you probably could look pretty closely and you would probably see that a lot of them were either uh, Jewish comedians or people who had come up with Jewish comedians. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, also, you don't just have that kind of verbal humor. You also have Maxwell Q. Klinger. And Klinger is dressing in drag. And he mm-hmm. is he is actually doing what Lenny Bruce did to get out of the war. Lenny oh. Bruce would dress as a whack or a wave, I forget which one it was, um, to try to get released from military service during World War II. No kidding. Yes. Oh, wow. So All there's, right. and and the Larry Gilbert, okay? Yeah. Uh, and and again, I, I did not research uh, Larry Gilbert and, and uh, some of the other writers, 
for this particular thing. But I do remember seeing them in several different documentaries about Jewish comedy and things like this. Um, but uh, but Larry Gilbert straight up said, yeah, uh, <laughs> Lenny Bruce uh, trying to get out was the inspiration of Klinger. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, Hawkeye Pierce, absolutely, because it's kind of got that Neil Simon vibe to it too. Quick, mm-hmm. rapid fire, mm-hmm. um, lots of jokes, flood the channel, and that means lots of puns. And it okay. is vaudevillian. Uh, Hawkeye Pierce is a vaudevillian character in a lot of ways. And he thickens up in so many other ways. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but there is that definite element Yes, there. And he, and he drives his foils crazy with his wordplay. Yeah. Um, you know, he just he, and he does it in so many different ways. Yeah, because because his wordplay is mm-hmm. as protean as it is, mm-hmm. there's there's no way you you can't make an attack. Right. Without without risking him taking that and flinging it back at you. Mm-hmm. It's it's verbal yeah. jeet kundo. It's yeah. it's the style of no style. Yeah, he pisses no. off, you know, he he uh gets around any rules and regs. He pisses off uh Houlihan and Burns. Mm-hmm. Later on, it's him and and then it becomes him and uh BJ Honeycutt mm-hmm. jousting and sparring with with um uh as you mentioned, uh Winchester. Yeah. And honestly, Winchester holds his own. <laughs> yeah. Like he is he is smarter than both of them and he's written <laughs> as such. Yeah. And he's from Boston and he's old uh, Boston. Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah, there really is. But All if right. it wasn't for MASH, I think puns would have stayed uh on the margins. But since MASH brought them out there, mm-hmm. Laugh In and the Carol Burnett show and the Smothers Brothers and Hee Haw were deploying them as well. Um, and I do think that without MASH, you would not have seen that as much in those variety shows. Um, now they weren't used as a challenge to authority necessarily, but they were more as a reference to the counterculture. Um, puns were not as effective, but they were winks to the audience in the same way that the Wilhelm scream was in the nineties and the two thousands. Okay. Um, you, you can listen to that in episode one thirty seven. Yes. Yeah. What were you going to say? Um, just, you know, you're, you're saying that puns weren't being used as, as subversive devices in the same way that they had previously. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that you say that in the context of m- moments before that, having mentioned the Smothers brothers, right. Who, who got themselves in, they got, they got kinds of trouble. Yeah. Point, they got, right. Yeah. Like the screen went black. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting their jokes, that their jokes on the Smothers Brothers were were overtly political. Yeah, when puns were used. It wasn't the punchline of the political oh, joke. Okay, it was tags. It was little okay. things. Like I remember specifically, they had a woman cooking a souffle, and she's like, "You don't want it to get too high, like I am." Um, and so it was passing references <laughs> to countercultural stuff. There were counterculture tags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I totally saw what you were saying there in regard to like laughing. Mhm. What really struck me with that though was I hadn't Elon realized too. that yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. 
uh, what I hadn't realized was uh, the chronology involved. I hadn't realized that that Mash predated Laughin. I, I had always thought of Laughin as being an an earlier. I don't think it predated Laughin. I'm saying okay. that its use of puns broke okay. open the okay. the you know, and and I didn't quant. I did not do a quantifiable study okay. on that. Okay. Um, but I, I noticed that Laughin's later seasons, mm, okay. um, certainly involved had. more of that. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. That makes sense. Um, and it could be that I just noticed it more in the in the same air as mm-hmm. you know, like once once you smell something burning, now you smell all the things that are burning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So. Okay. Yeah, Laughing. Laughing predated Mash. Okay. Uh, now, late night talk shows also did their part, also using puns for double entendre and innuendo. Mm-hmm. So they're using puns in a very specific way. Uh, variety shows deployed them as a wink to drug culture, usually. Johnny Carson deployed them as winks to the sexual revolution. Okay. Karnak the Magnificent regular does this. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Some of those skits were... <laughs> like you know um it, it it almost doesn't count as a double entendre like that's almost a single entendre yeah the yeah. The, well, the blatantness the blatantness of that is yeah quite a thing yeah. but yeah you know but no yeah right the, the cover of the pun for the body right yeah so it like kind of softens the, yeah the sexual part of it but that's about yeah. it um, but you know, at the end of the day, these these are the margins for puns still. So despite them being popular on mm-hmm. on the TV, um, they are still in the margins. They are they are relegated to certain subjects. They are not a broad topic, right? They're not okay. a broad yeah, yeah. category. Yeah, public discourse still abhorred them, but laughed at them for thirty minutes at at, at a set time every night. Mm-hmm. That was it. Um, it stayed as low humor through the end of the century, as Henry Fowler had said in 1926, though, quote, puns are good, bad and indifferent. Puns are good, bad and indifferent. And only those who lack the wit to make them are unaware of the fact. OK, so you remember how I'd mentioned that white supremacy grew as puns got pushed to the sides? Mm. Yeah. Well, as white supremacy and imperialism grew, as codified acceptable English usage and spelling grew, the margins were where most of the world, who were not of the dominant culture by virtue of their remoteness to whiteness, their accents, their cosmopolitanism, were also regulated, or relegated, rather. Okay. And puns and those communities have actually had a long history of interacting within those communities in almost any community that's pushed to the side by the dominant culture in their region. Okay. There are in, in other words, like when you have marginalized communities, you're going to have puns coming out of those communities. Okay. There are tons of Yiddish puns, not only because that shit's fun, but because uh, Jewish folks and the Roma folks in Europe and the Mediterranean at different times, were not allowed equitable access to the public square in terms of commerce, language, acceptability, etc. Mm-hmm. 
The same thing's true in England for people of Jamaican, Pakistani, Indian at, at all descent. The same in Australia for people of Maori descent. I could go on, but you can kind of see the same dynamic here in America. Indigenous communities, immigrant communities, and stolen from other places communities mm -hmm. all have a rich history of punning off of the English language. And just as in the 1920s, jazz employs employed puns, and in the 1950s, rock employed puns, as the 1970s gave way to hip-hop, yet another type of music started by black folks started employing puns very early on. Country music did it too, by the way, but uh, in the 1920s and 30s was also the music of the dispossessed and the marginalized. Mm -hmm. okay. In 1980... Curtis Blow came out with the song Those Are the Breaks. Um, here are the lyrics. I'm not going to even try to uh, do it with the backbeat, but breaks on a bus, breaks on a car, breaks to make you a superstar, breaks to win and breaks to lose, but these here breaks will rock your shoes, and these are the breaks. Break it up, break it up, break it up. All right. So those are the breaks is B-R-E-A-K-S. But then he mm. started immediately to talk about the breaks on a bus and the breaks on a car. And then what kind of a break to make you a superstar, right? So he is punning in 1980. Yeah. And by no means was he the first and by no means was he the only one. He, But there, there's plenty of others. And the cleverness of the puns interwove through and around plenty of artists' lyrics. In 1994... The notorious B.I.G. showed his cleverness through the puns in the song Big Papa. Now check it. I got more Mac than Craig and in the bed. Believe me, sweetie, I got enough to feed the needy. No need to be greedy. I got mad friends with Benzes. See notes by the layers. True fucking players. So... Okay. What's he got a lot of? What's he got more more Mac then, right? And and in the bed. Believe me, sweetie, I got enough to feed the needy, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to feed you. I can feed the needy. No, no need to be greedy. I got mad friends with Benz's C-notes by the layers, true fucking players, right? So yeah. he's punning. In 2004, Jay-Z released 99 Problems. Right. Um, the whole second verse is his interaction with a police officer who pulls him over. At the end, the officer says, well, we, we'll see how smart you are when the canines come. So he's he's pulled him over. He's like, mm -hmm. you know, or, do yeah. you have a weapon, uh, you know, and, and all that. And Jay-Z is like, look, my trunk is locked. You know, he's like, you do mind if I search around your car? He's like, you don't need to search anything. Uh, my trunk is locked. My glove compartment's locked. I know I know the laws. You're going to leave mm -hmm. me. And he says, well, we'll see. We'll see how smart you are when the canine comes. To which Jay-Z responds with the pun. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Huh. <laughs> yeah, okay. That the canine won't find anything. Yeah. Right. Eminem also regularly employs puns, often multiple layers with recursive features. Uh, Shorty, you're fine, but you sort of remind me of a 49er because you've been a gold digger since you were a minor. Mm. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. D yeah. You know. Yeah. Or or then one of my favorites. Now you get to watch her leave out the window. Guess that's why they call it window pane. All right. And so on and so on. Yeah. So what's of note is is that we are going to see a pattern here. Number one, puns are popular. Number two, 
The dominant culture denigrates puns at the same time as it tries to narrow who gets to be a part of the dominant culture, based in part on the codification of language, but ultimately in a reaction in a white supremacist way. Okay. Three, puns get pushed to the margins, and this is sequential. Four, marginalized people develop wickedly clever puns and then express them in their own art media, whether it is vaudeville, movies, radio plays, radio, comedy records, Mm -hmm. you know, country music, rock and roll, rockabilly, hip hop, does not matter. Five, that art medium gains uh, the attention and the appeal of the dominant culture. And then six, puns are popularly accepted again until we repeat two through five again. Okay. So based on that, Mm -hmm. as we struggle Mm -hmm. collectively to move toward a society that tries to dismantle white supremacy, Do you think the cycle will stop in a position where puns hold a more respected position in in discourse? Or if we if we eliminate the the shitty part of that of that cycle, Mm -hmm. what do you think happens there? You remember when we did our punk rock rock episode where he said in a, in a perfect world <laughs> punk rock wouldn't exist? Yeah, in a perfect world, you don't think we'd have that many puns? I don't think you would have really good ones. Maybe. Okay. I don't know. I I I, I have a hard time believing that puns would ever disappear. But now that I'm mm. looking back through history, they're almost always coming from the margins. So if you have a society that does away with marginalization, mm-hmm. then there's less need for that. Yeah. Well, know. part of the yeah. part of the answer there is that because of our flawed, fundamentally flawed nature as as humans, mm-hmm. if you get rid of race as a mechanism for uh, marginalizing people, there will be some other reason why people get marginalized. True. I mean, before there'll always be in and out groups. whiteness, you still yeah. had poverty. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um, so yeah, that was that was where my brain went with that. Yeah. I was like, yeah. okay, so we have this cycle. What happens when we eliminate the crummy part of it? Yeah. Uh, as long as there's marginalization, there's punning. Yeah. I, I okay. Think. Now puns have been on the uptick uptick since 2016. They obviously existed prior, but witness that Punderdome had started in 2011 as a live show in New York. Uh, Witness the O. Henry pun competition that has been in existence for 45 years now. Okay. But pun shows as those are the outliers because pun shows as a popular uh, thing by and large didn't start to grow until 2016, 2017. And when the pandemic sent us all home in 2020, a whole spate of pun shows got started around the world digitally. I know because I've been on a lot of them. As several comedians are billed largely now due to their puns. In the Edinburgh Fringe Fest, there's a bigger space for puns now. Same with Sketchfest in San Francisco. I know because I've been on both. I've been <laughs> at the Edinburgh yeah. uh, Fringe Fest uh, digitally. I've yeah. been uh, to Sketchfest uh, a couple times, sold out. It was awesome. 
But uh, now the dominant culture is really starting to embrace puns again, and I can see the elitism creeping in again. As recently as December 3rd, Apologia have been written for puns in two different British publications. They're using science to explain it better, and it's that same damned appeal for legitimacy that we've seen multiple times in history. Mm. Shit, there's even an article in the August Mensa Bulletin about puns. I know Fucking because Mensa. My show, well, I know because my show is featured in it. Uh, okay, well, all right, still cool. It's still mostly certainly appealing to the elite for legitimacy, and that leads us right back to step three: puns are pushed to the margins. Again, still, and it's as mm-hmm. though we're being punished for our humor. You know, I wondered how long it would be before that one showed up. Whole thing is just a big setup for that. It's yeah, two episodes <laughs> just to get you there. Just, just to get to there. I put a few other tags yeah. in there. You know, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you'd think yeah. I wasn't going there, but yeah. Uh, no, I, I knew. I know. Yeah, I knew. I knew that was going to happen. Now, in case you wondered, is there a tie? between puns and resisting Nazis. Mm. Yes. I found one told in Germany at the time, and there were these things called whisper jokes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I've heard heard of the concept of the whisper jokes. Yeah. Yeah. And at least one person was executed in 1944 for this. Jesus. Now, this is a different one than the one that got him killed, but okay. here's here's the joke. Which city has the most warehouses? Which one? Berlin. Wherever you look, there were houses. In the center of hey. Berlin, more than 50% of the apartments had been destroyed or severely damaged by the end of the war. So this yeah. is a pun with two German words. Warren which means goods or wares, and Warren, which means there or they were. All right. So nice that there it works were... languages. Yeah, I like that. Warenhouses. Warenhouses. if you're also filling out your bingo card at home, yeah. here's the wrestling pun. <laughs> there was a wrestler named Mike Rotunda. Uh, he was a phenomenal technical wrestler. He was part of the U.S. Express with Barry Windham in 1984, won the Tag Team Championship, lost it to the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. Um, Yeah, okay. Or, no, won it. Won it from them? Yeah, won it from them, actually. Okay. Take it back. Um, And then lost it to the Dream Team. That's what it was. All right. Uh, But um, he played a... So after that, he went away and came back. He comes back as a tax lawyer named Erwin R. Scheister. He wrestled in suspenders and a tie. He would wear cheater glasses to the ring. He'd take them off. He'd come with a briefcase, and he'd talk about wherever he was, about how many tax cheats there were in that town. If you look at his uh, initials, Erwin I-R-S. Yes. And if you... Yeah. There's also Triple H's original ring name. So Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. He right. was supposed to be this effete blue blood Hunter Hearst, Hearst Helmsley. Helmsley. Yeah. Triple H, right? Yeah. His original 
wrestling name. Tara Ryzen. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Aldo Montoya, who uh, was a a wrestler in in WWF, uh, never really took off. Mm-hmm. Left and went to ECW, became just incredible. Because of course he did. There's also a professional wrestler. Oh God, what was his name? Scotty Demore. Uh, okay. who wrestled under the moniker Hugh Morris. Okay, props to that one. Yeah. His finishing yeah. move yeah. was called No Laughing Matter. There... I, okay, all right, there's there's layers there. That's yeah. that's 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 an onion. There were uh <laughs> there was a tag team of uh-huh. hog farmers from Arkansas. Oh no. Um and uh, Phineas I. Godwin and Henry O. Godwin. Again, look at their initials. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, There's another yeah. guy who uh, who was a jobber to the stars. His name was Matt Stryker. Okay. Because he got knocked down a lot. He would strike Matt, Matt. Stryker. Oh, God. Okay. See... This yeah. this whole this whole sequence here uh-huh. has felt to me very much like he has a wife, you know. <laughs> would you like to hear? Her, would yeah. you like to hear what her name is? Yeah, Incontinentia buttocks. So there was a team, a tag team called the Dudley Boys, and the whole thing okay. was like they all had the same father but different moms. So there was a black Dudley boy, there was a white Dudley boy, there was oh, all oh, kinds of different Dudley boys. <laughs> And and then the smallest Dudley boy named Little Spike Dudley, whose uh, finishing move was called the Acid Drop, and look at his Little initials, Spike Dudley. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, my favorite, yeah, Mick, Mick Foley, his character, Mankind, yeah, allowed itself all kinds of puns. Yeah, what a blow to Mankind. Mankind will never recover from this. Yeah, okay. Mankind yeah. is demented and strange. <laughs> okay, okay. That last one is unintentionally fucking deep. Yes. Like, <laughs> wow. Yep. Okay. So. Yeah. And, and interestingly, mm-hmm. all of those are coming out of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Which is vaudevillian. The the opera. Well, it's vaudevillian, and it's the opera of of the common classes. Absolutely. You know. So. Yep. It it only makes sense. Uh-huh. That, of course. Wow. So there you go. Okay. That's it. All right. What That's, have you cleaned? Um. I I really. The the codification of the cycle mm-hmm. is really powerful. Um and there's there's the there's the historical cycle that we see going on there. Mm-hmm. And I think on another level, I think um th- this isn't 
what we what we tend to focus on with with our particular paradigm but i think it would be interesting to look into the deeper psychology on an individual level mm-hmm. of the attraction to the ambiguity and the flash of the flash of intuitive cleverness mm-hmm. as opposed to you know cut the butter square rationality right that's that's involved in a good pun and how that relates to it being a a form of wordplay, a form of of humor, social capital, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's that's that we see in marginalized communities and marginalized circumstances. You know the the because because we we focus really heavily. We we tend to get very pointy headed about the macro. But I think there's there's also an interesting element of the micro there. Like on an individual level, the the forces acting on the people who create the culture that this stuff comes out of. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um and yeah, the the idea of of puns being protean. And I think there we we had there there was there was uh the, the idea that why are you getting angry because you're smart yeah by admin um, local yeah yeah admin is admin is idea about that i i kind of i kind of have a response to that cuz okay. what it what it comes down to as somebody who has that oh my why the fuck are you doing this to me you know kind of <laughs> kind of reaction yeah is um is because when when you when you get a pun you can't not get the pun mm-hmm. like like you feel like part of your own brain has been used against you you know okay. it's it's like it's like oh my god i, I wish i didn't get god damn it you know you you, you've been there's, tricked there's, into there's, enjoying something yeah you've been, you people. yeah it's there's there's the there's the feeling of having been tricked mm. And, and, you know, as, as much as on a logical level, it should be, oh, hey, oh, oh, I see what you did there, you know, for, for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. there's this level of, oh, you fucking, you, you got me with you. How dare you? You know, um, yeah, you're regularly like, how did I not see that coming? Yeah. About, yeah. Yeah. You know, like and anytime you mentioned Himmler, how did I not see that coming? Um, yeah. You know, because I have to make that one. I, I it's a compulsion. Um, no, I, I don't mind. I gar- I garble them up. <laughs> Fuck. See, see right there, mm-hmm. right there. Like, damn it. <laughs> um, and and I and I think that's it's it's the it's the intuitive. Like if you have a speech center and you understand the language that the pun is being made or languages plural mm-hmm. that the pun relies on when, when it, when it gets presented to you, yeah, it's almost, it's almost like a booby trap that you step on, you know, like, sure. You know, you, you, yeah. Um, 
And so that's, that's my response to why are you getting angry? Because you were smart. I'm getting angry because I feel like you've, you've tricked me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't feel smart in that moment. I feel like, Oh, what? Oh, you know, I feel ambushed because there's, because there's no way, there's no way to get out of it. You know? (laughs) Um, So, yeah. And and for the record, as much as I bitch and moan, I fully recognize the the cleverness and the 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 true wit as opposed to false wit, which again, just like what the fuck, Samuel Johnson can. Yes, oh my god, I you know I'm gonna have to go back and figure out where I had the inflated idea of him. I I had because he sounds like such a jackass. Maybe he stood up to somebody who was even shittier or something. I mean, it could be because that's usually where I end up admiring people, and then I'm like, oh, oh, like Dorothy Dorothy Thompson. I was like, dude, she's fucking rad, man. She interviewed Hitler and showed him for the shitbag that he is. She got her ass kicked out of Germany. Yeah, and then like I read the shit that she says about black voters in America. I'm like, oh, dude, what are you? God damn it! Yeah, yeah. Why? Why must you disappoint me like this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I you know, and there I think uh it, it was it was a quotation of Johnson by Boswell mm-hmm. that I think is part of it is uh they encountered, you know, they're on the streets of London and they encountered a a, a child, an urchin, you know, mm-hmm. begging in the street, and uh Johnson, you know, threw the kid some money and boswell said you know why are you why are you giving him money when you know he's just going to go use it to buy gin and johnson's response was why should i deny him the only pleasure he might have and yeah, i think i think surprising that the dad from happy days would be that against charity that that uptight and yeah. and selfish yeah yeah, yeah. nice nice thanks but uh and i think it's i think it's that quote that mm-hmm. I can probably hold responsible for my holding him in this level of esteem. Sure. And yeah, no, he sounds like just such a jerk. Ah, <sighs> oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Never historically research your heroes, kids. That's yeah. That's or the lesson. Having here. heroes. Yes. Might be better. Might be, might be better. So, yeah. So. so I'd say, yeah, that's, that's everything I've. Okay. Taken out of that. Cool. Cool. Uh, what are you going to recommend to people to read? Um, well, I'm certainly not going to recommend the life of Johnson, uh, by Boswell. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have anything, uh, anything written to recommend. Uh, but I am going to say, um, anybody who is behind the times like I am, um, I do really, 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 really strongly recommend Andor. Mm. Uh, if you have access to Disney Plus, um, it is a very well acted, uh, very tightly written series. So mm. far, I'm 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 seven episodes in because I'm I'm way behind because my wife is not interested in so many of these things so my my window for watching stuff is limited sure um but it is it is really really well done and I think it's a really great example of what can be done within the Star Wars universe when you are 
willing to play with what genre of story you're telling in the universe. Oh yeah. Um, and so as an exercise in that highly recommend it. Um, and everybody on the cast, like there's, there's not a clinker performance anywhere to be found. It's, it's awesome. So, yeah. yeah. So much good tension in that show. Oh yeah. No, it's amazing. So that's, that's my recommendation, uh, for this episode. Uh, what about you? Uh, I'm going to recommend two things. Here's a book for you. Uh, the pun also rises. Uh, the humble pun revolutionized language, changed history, and made wordplay more than some antics by John Pollock. You might remember I recommended this back when we were doing uh, the, one of the episodes on The Dark Crystal. Yes. Um, so this is where I got some of the source material for what I was talking about. Um, and this pointed me in the direction of a bunch of other stuff. The other thing I'm going to recommend is actually a uh, mockumentary on Netflix called okay. Kunk on Earth. Kunk on Earth. Okay. U-N-K on Earth. Um, look, you're going to have, you personally are going to have five days without your uh, beloved next to you. Yeah. Watch one episode and 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 tell me that you can stop. It's like potato chips. <laughs> it is so good. And really? I, you okay. are going to fucking love it. Oh my God. Okay. It is hilarious. Um, so yeah, just uh, watch the first episode and then let me know when you're done with it all because that'll be that same night because holy okay. shit. Um, all but right. Con Con cool, Earth, cool. Y'all check that out. But also the pun also rises. So Okay. But yeah. All right. Well, where Sounds can good. people find you if you want to be found? Well, uh, let's see. I can be found at uh, Mr. Underscore Blaylock on TikTok. Um, I can be found as Catfetcher on Twitter for as long as Twitter uh, doesn't uh, immolate itself in a ball of blue feathery flame. And uh, we collectively can be found on our website, www.geekhistorytime.com uh, and on Twitter at uh, Geek History Time. And of course, you have found us because you're listening to us right now. So uh, whatever uh, podcast service uh, you have found us on, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button and give us the five-star review uh, that we have clearly earned. Uh, yeah. So that's how, but where can you be found, sir? Uh, you could find me, uh, at duh harmony one on, uh, TikTok. I do a lot of puns on there. Uh, let's see. You can find me, uh, in West Sacramento or not in West Sacramento. Jesus Christ. Like that town even exists. You can find me in Sacramento, uh, on March 3rd, April 7th and May 5th, uh, at Capital Punishment. Uh, doling out puns um, with our crew at Luna's in, in Sacramento. So come check that out. Bring your proof of vax, bring some money, buy some merch, get some food is good times and a lot of good puns. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's, that's where you can find me. So, all right. For geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling twenties. <laughs>